Chapter thirty three of Ticonderoga by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty three. The day was intensely hot, the wind nearly southwest, the sky deep blue toward the horizon, but waning to a hazy gold colour in the zenith, when, at an early hour on the Saturday morning, the great flotilla of General Abercrombie got under way. One large boat, modelled like a whale-boat, and so designated in contemporary accounts, led the way with the active and energetic second in command, accompanied by a portion of his own regiment. The rest followed, spreading out in the shape of an irregular wedge over the face of the lake, and the whole steered at once directly toward the narrows. Fresh and peaceful and beautiful was the scene upon that loveliest of lakes, with the wild mountains and sweeping forests round, and myriads of lovely islands studding the golden waters like gems. Lord H. sat somewhat reclining on his cloak in the stern of the leading boat, with a telescope in his hand, which, however, he did not use. The scene presented to his eye had sufficient in its general features to afford pleasant occupation to the thoughts, and he strove to turn them, as much as possible, toward objects unconnected with his own fate, or with the fate of the expedition. Diamond Island was soon passed, Long Island left to the eastward, and the rich narrow strip of low land extending far into the lake, and known as Long Point, rounded by the boat in which he sat. He gazed back to see how near the others were following, and then looked forward again. French Mountain, Deer Pasture Mountain, Harris's Bay, Dunham's Bay, were left behind, and the Dame Island rising up in the midst of the waters like a cupola of some large submerged cathedral was right in front many another islet was seen scattered round while the peculiar magical effect of the lazy midsummer light made them look hardly real at length the high precipitous cliffs known as shelving rock on the one hand and the tongue mountain on the other were seen in front announcing the approach to the narrows while the top of the black mountain appeared dark and grim over the lower land in the foreground more caution now became necessary, for hitherto no fear had been entertained that the movements of the flotilla would be discovered by the enemy's scouts, but that part of the lake most frequently swept by the French boats was now at hand, and it became necessary to keep as far inshore as possible, and take advantage of every headland and island as a means of concealment, in order to hide the approach and number of the armament till the last moment. Still the general orders having been given, Lord H. lay quiet and meditated. On an active and energetic spirit, the saddest thoughts are most apt to obtrude in moments of forced tranquillity. He could not cast them off. He tried to think of everything that was happy, of Edith, of his speedy union with her who had become the brightness of his life, of pleasant days beyond the sea, far away in their peaceful native land. But still, still, through all the visions he conjured up of hope and happiness, and long cheerful hours came chiming like a tolling of a bell the sad prophetic words of the question shall i ever see her more and he longed for the moment of landing to shake off thought in active exertion at length it came the wild strange scenery of the buck mountain and the rattlesnake dens was seen upon the left and stretching out in front the low fertile sweep of land known from that day forward as sabbath day point there, in the evening, the troops landed for refreshment, and the boats were drawn up to the southward, 
under cover of the banks and woods, but with a few miles farther voyage on the following day ere they reached the point of attack. Happy are the thoughtless, for though perhaps they enjoy not so highly and their enjoyment is of a lower kind, yet they can enjoy each sunshiny hour that God grants them in their course through life. The brief repose, the pleasant meal, the fair and the strange things around afforded matter for much happiness to many a light heart there during the halt of the army. But it was not so with Lord H. He knew that the next day was to be one of great fatigue, difficulty and exertion, and in order that his corporal powers might be in full activity, he lay down and tried to sleep. But sleep would not come, and he had not closed an eye when, toward midnight, the order was given to form upon the beach and re-embark. Everyone, as well as the young nobleman, felt that to be a solemn moment. The sky was clear and bright, the stars were shining out large and lustrous, not a breeze moved in the sky, the clear waters of the lake were smooth as a sheet of glass. The only sound that stirred the air was the tramp of the troops towards the boat, the whirring insects in the trees, and the wailing voice of the whippoorwill. All was conducted as silently as possible. The oars of the boats were muffled, and once more Lord H. led the way with a few bodies of rangers in several bateaux. The regular troops followed in the centre of the line, and the volunteers of the provinces formed wings on either side. Stilly and silently the flight of boats skimmed over the waters, till, after a few hours of solemn darkness, day dawned upon them, revealing to the scouts of Montcalm upon the rocky eminences near the shore the full blaze of the English uniforms in the innumerable boats, sweeping down as if to certain conquest. Somewhat less than one hour more, the first boat neared what is called Prisoner's Island, bore away a little to the westward, where the ground was open, touched the shore, and the young nobleman instantly sprang to land. Regiment after regiment followed. The debarkation was perfectly orderly and uninterrupted, and it was evident that the French garrison of Ticonderoga, if not actually taken by surprise, were attacked much sooner than they had expected. The number of the Indians with the army was actually small, but it was known that large parties of Mohawks, Oneidas, and even Onondagas were hovering in the flanks, sweeping, in fact, in a crescent, round that which was then considered the key of Lake Champlain. It was nearly noon before the disembarkation was completed and the army formed into three columns, ready for advance. The first column then plunged into the woods, headed by Lord H. in person, and pushed on for some way unopposed, except by the difficulties of the road, which at every step became greater and greater, from the number of thick juniper bushes and tangled brushwood which encumbered the ground under the large trees. The men's strength was spent in contending with these natural obstructions, and to give them time to breathe, Lord H. halted his corps for a moment, at the first open space in the woods which they reached. He himself leaned upon the short ranger's musket, which he carried in his hand, his fine expressive countenance glowing with exercise and eagerness and beaming encouragement upon the gallant men who followed him on what they believed to be the road to victory. At that moment something was heard plunging through the thick brushwood on the left, and an Indian in his full war costume, painted and armed, burst out into the open space, holding up a piece of paper in his hand. He darted instantly toward the commander of the column, lifting the paper high, and Lord H., who was just upon the point of giving the order to advance again, 
paused, and stretched forth his hand. What the man gave him was not a letter, but apparently merely a leaf torn out of a pocket-book. And the moment it was delivered, the Indian, whose eyes had been gleaming with eagerness, dropped his arms by his side and stood as still as a statue. Lord H. gazed upon the paper, and beheld, written in pencil, apparently in great haste, the following words. There is a masked redoubt in front, as far as I can discover, a little to the east of the brook. It is concealed by low bushes, and the gaps in the underwood are filled up with boughs of pine. Edith is within, a prisoner. Beware, we are marching round rapidly to take it in reverse. I mean the Oneidas. Walter Prevost. Several of the superior officers had gathered round, and amongst the rest, a man deservedly famous in those, and after times, then simply known as Major Putnam. "'We have been seen by friends, if not by enemies, Putnam,' said Lord H., handing him the paper. "'What do you advise to be done? You are more skilled in wood warfare than I am.' "'Send back the Indian,' answered Major Putnam. "'Let him tell his brethren to advance as speedily as possible, and help to clear the woods.' Then give me a hundred rangers and a handful of Indians, and I will push on myself and make a way for you. Good, said Lord H. Call up your men, Putman, while I send away the Indian. Beckoning up an interpreter, the young nobleman gave their savage allies directions, telling them particularly to report the exact spot which the column had reached, and by the time this was done and the man gone, Major Putnam had placed himself at the head of his little party ready to dash on. Stay, Putnam said Lord H. You command, but I go with you. Putnam paused and dropped the point of his sword, looking almost aghast. My lord, he said, I beg you would forbear. If I am killed, the loss of my life will be of little consequence to anyone, but the preservation of your life is of importance to this army. Lord H. laid his hand upon his arm, saying, Putman, your life is as dear to you as mine is to me. I am determined to go. Lead on. The next moment they dashed on at quick time along a trail which opened before them. The few Indians who accompanied the party scattered as usual to the right and left, and for some little way they made good progress through the tangled wood. At length, however, all, even to the natives, became puzzled by the number of trails crossing each other and the thick and intricate nature of the wood. But still they forced their way forward, judging the direction they ought to take by the way the shadows of the trees were thrown by the sunshine. Thus, for four or five hundred yards they pushed on, without seeing an enemy, when Putnam, suddenly pointing with his sword, exclaimed, "'There goes a Frenchman's cap! More of them! More of them!' "'Now, gallant rangers, down with your pieces and make your barrels ring!' In an instant every gun was levelled, but at the same moment a sharp flash ran along the trees and bushes beyond. The loud report of firearms rattled through the forest, and one of the young officers of the rangers dropped at once. Several privates fell before they could draw the trigger, while the rest were sending a fatal volley into the wood. "'On! On!' cried Putnam. "'Clear the copse of them. My lord, what is the matter?' Lord H. stood for a moment longer without answering, then wavered for an instant on his feet, and fell back into the arms of a sergeant of the rangers. "'I knew it!' cried Putnam. "'Forward, my men, forward, and avenge this noble fellow!' End of chapter 33